As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to part two of this episode of Move. Jamie, are you ready? Dude, I'm always ready. I'm strapped in. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to be inspired, which is our word that we love to use. Let's do this. Part two of Move. There are a lot of people out there who want to start something new or want to go and do something, whether it's in fashion or start their own brand. And in fact, the best way to make something succeed is put all of your effort into that one thing. When you have no safety net left, mm -hmm. that's when you have to make sure that that thing is going to work, right? One of my favorite quotes is, uh, never have a plan B or plan A or never work, because you've always got that safety net in the back of your head. Or like, I think you have to just go like full on into something. And I think the minute that I handed in my notice, that was the biggest motivation that I could have given myself then to like actually make some cash. And then you got to that moment where you you had your PayPal account, you were selling your T-shirts, you're doing that. Where did you source the T-shirts from? How did you, did you raise money? How did you know, did you write a business plan? Or were you just like, here I go? Um, yeah, so for my, for, because this was this ongoing joke amongst me and my friends about this sort of failed T-shirt business and everyone was like, oh, you should do it again, you should do it again. My mum lent me 500 quid Uh, to buy my first batch of 50 t-shirts of each one. Um, and then that was that was it then. That was my only investment until two years ago. Are you serious? Amazing. So you then yeah. just, you kept hold of everything. The, you just kept... Yeah. And, but, but then and then about six years later, my mum presented me with an invoice entitled Mother of Holland for every time I'd called her in tears and been like, I've got a VAT bill, I'm really fucked. Um, <laughs> so there was, you know, there was bits of help along the way. Um, but in terms of like uh, any, you know, investment or outside finance, it was all just because it was all financed independently. But mm -hmm. I think... From in fashion terms, I started very back to front. So usually what would happen is someone would go, someone would go to fashion school and they would learn to really kind of um, explore their creativity and really evolve that in like to the, the furthest realms of their imagination. And then gradually over time, they would distill that down into something that becomes more commercial and commercially viable and then something that you can sell at volume. And I started the exact opposite. I started with the most commercial high volume product that you can get to which is a printed t-shirt and then I had to try and develop an aesthetic and you know an actual brand look and feel and, and that must be quite, voice, that must be quite right? difficult yeah I mean it wasn't easy it was very much um it's it it wasn't easy but 
it did help in the fact that it funded that process. Yeah, because course. I started with something that was selling. Well, weirdly, and Jamie and I, the first product we sold at Candy Cans was T-shirts. Was it? Because it's fairly straightforward to sell. Yeah. You can kind of print a T-shirt and yeah. we didn't have any products. So we'd launch, the, the day we launched our website, we had a product that said, a T-shirt that said, I'm a candy kitten. Yeah. And we sold a load of those and that funded the production of the suite. Yeah. Yeah. But Henry, you, you, you probably were in a club or you were walking down the street and you probably saw someone wearing your T-shirt and you must be like, God, that's amazing. Someone who I've never met before is wearing my T-shirt. <laughs> I was walking down the Fulham Road and a guy walked towards me saying, I'm a candy kitten on his T-shirt. And we both died. <laughs> it was his worst moment of his life. And I think mine as well. To the point where we just crossed the road. Yeah. So he just walked past Dive each other on the opposite side. And I think he went home and burnt it. <laughs> Which is great for your business, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, it was, but it was those moments. But also, you know, you you spoke of before the fact that you had to. You, I think you spoke about naivety at the beginning, and I've heard you speak this in an interview where naivety is one of the most valuable things that you can have. Yeah. And why was naivety good for you? For you, because nobody told me what not to do. Nobody told me what to do, and in in doing that, nobody told me what was the wrong way to go about it. So I literally just did what felt right. And I just, it was all trial and error. I had no clue what I was doing. And so I did things that people would be like, that's insane. You can't do that at being such a young brand or be, you know, being 23 year old chancer. And because I just gave it a go, if it went, if it went wrong, then didn't do it again. And I think that's what rings true with us so as true. well. It's so true. You know, we started a sweets company having no idea about, you know, trying to Google how to make sweets. It's impossible mm. to. And that naivety is so great. And sometimes, I think you probably think, sometimes I wish we had that naivety back. because Because it's annoying because Ed and I spoke about this the other day that you know, we have a team of 18 now and all these different things. And back in the day, we said, well, let's go and make this suite and we're just going to do it. Mm. But now we don't do that because there's lots of loopholes. There's a risk assessment and yeah. all crap like that. Yeah. And you probably had the same thing, It just gives thing, you the right? confidence, I think, to go yeah. in without even knowing it at the time. Yeah. Like you could call it naivety. You could also call it balls, I think. Yeah. Because, you know, you've got to have those balls to like go out there and, and try it and do it. But the naivety sort of encourages that whereas it's kind of, I see it like a kind of like a young child that's not scared of heights or yeah. flying or any of those things and the older you get the more aware of all of the kind of risks yeah. you become and you that's kind of scared. like in business you become more and more scared yeah yeah but but also what was that so you 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 had this naivety you were building the brand um you were selling t-shirts what was the moment when it became um, the, your actual brand when you actually it, it became a name um, you hired, when you hired your first person was that the moment that it became a brand um, yeah I mean sort of early the next year so kind of yeah, uh, March April the next year I, I got my first employee or started working with Jessica who I met at school and that's when we sort of she started uh, her role was to to sell it in, to independent retailers. So uh, that's when I created a wholesale department, I suppose. And then my role was to work on the designs and the creative and and work with people like that. But because I didn't have any fashion uh, training, so I hadn't gone to university to study how to pattern court or even use a sewing machine or anything like that, 
um, I had to work with a wider team much earlier than a lot of people. So you hear of a lot of fashion students, you know, designing, sketching, developing, pattern cutting, stitching their whole collection completely themselves in their bedroom. That's why fashion students look grey because they never go outside. (laughs) (laughs) It's not because they're cool, guys. (laughs) Um, But... Uh, but I didn't, I didn't have any of those skills. And so I had to work with machinists and pattern cutters and, you know, and designers and print designers much earlier on to help me realize my vision. I knew what the vision was and I, I just didn't have the skills to, to execute it. But that's valuable though, because that means you had to learn in your feet the entire time. You're learning new things every single day. Yeah. And I think the biggest advantage, well, not the bit that I always say, someone says, what do you love about having your own brand is the fact that, God, I've just learned so much that I would never, ever understand if I was working in a corporate business or working for someone else. I would never realize that, right? But also I disengage, you know, like it's so boring if you're just, if you're not learning anything, like it's not keeping you interested. And, you know, every single day still, like 11 years in, you're learning something new, whether it be about a certain fabric that we use that we've never used before or a certain trim or whether it be about like, you know, one of your staff has gone and done this today and you're like, great, got to go deal with that. But And along that kind of learning journey, what's the, what's the biggest mistake that kind of really stands out in your memory? Um... God, there's so many. (laughs) (laughs) We always get asked and we're like, where do we start? I'm like, well, um, the biggest mistake, um, I think the biggest mistake is complacency, for sure. I think the biggest mistake is actually not pushing forward at the same rate that I did from day one. Mm. I think getting to a point where you start to feel like you you've established something and you can kind of rely on that in any way shape or form is probably the biggest mistake because that's the minute people disengage and switch off um so yeah and that's probably the and especially in something like fashion which is all about trends and all about what's going to be hot and what's not going to be hot and what's looking good and what isn't looking good and complacency is probably the biggest it's the kryptonite within the fashion industry for sure because if you yeah. start to slack on those things how do you keep a fashion label exciting and fun and different every single season and day in day out should we call someone <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but this is what's so interesting Henry, is that you know you don't even you don't have the and i don't think anyone has the answer no. and i think people i remember when i used to go for advice about candy kittens to big corporate heads and people like that i thought they had the answer no one has the answer and that's what's I, I think so interesting, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think in the period of time that I've been trading in the fashion industry, so the last 10, 11 years, so I started my brand before social media. So there's that whole revolution that we've had to take into account. Also, when I started my brand, if you go to sort of Vogue.com and you look at all the fashion shows, 10 years ago, there was probably under 100 brands to look at every season. And now there's way more than 1,000. So the industry is kind of exploded because there's all of these new communication tools that people can utilize and you don't need a million dollar marketing budget to access an audience or to you know promote product so the whole industry has completely been flipped on its head and continues to get flipped on its head every three months or every six months and so the the biggest thing that you've got to learn is agility and like how you can navigate those changes and in some ways the smaller you are the easier that is to do you know, it's such you, an exciting time there for the young people that maybe sat now listening to the podcast yeah. who have an idea, want to get into fashion. Yeah. Any, the barriers of entry. Are now. You need an iPhone. Yeah. Full stop. 
Done. Yeah. That's but, exactly it. That's all you need. So exciting. Back to my math teacher. Fuck you, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I got a calculator and I got the window to the world. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. What more do you want? Schools. I could probably do school on an iPhone if I got the right app. I think that's what people do now. <laughs> <clears throat> but also, you know, with you, you... You have House of Holland, that's your brand. But what you've also done is, what's amazing is you've you've done these collaborations and you've licensed and things like that. And mm. you talk about how important that is for you. But when you've done your collaborations with like Debenhams and things like that, do you worry that you were going to lose? Because your brand, you you look at your brand, House of Holland, you know that is you. Mm. That's got everything about you. It's fun, it's quirky, it's bright colours, mm. it's got innuendos, it's got all mm. these different things. So when you collaborate... Do you worry that your voice could be lost sometimes? Yeah, you do. And I think um, with licensing and with collaborations, it's always that's where my control freak steps in. And I think the biggest mistake that brands have made in the past is to license things that are completely disconnected to them and their brand aesthetic or ethos or, you know, DNA. So, you know, putting... I mean, Pierre Cardin's the big example that people always use. There was, like, Pierre Cardin umbrellas that were just had his name written all over them. I mean, he made fucking fortune, but, um, you know, it killed the brand eventually. Yeah. Um, and I think when I do take on those partnerships or those licensing projects, I I completely micromanage, especially the design process, because it's very important that whatever price point that product's at, whatever market we're targeting, you know, it's about expanding our market and our, our audience, not about alienating the existing one, um, you know, in yeah you're not really yeah and actually focusing on that one price point and i think that's key for any fashion designer who is trying to upcome it's, it's about how do they price their clothes and how do you go about doing that because you go well that's going to be too expensive no one's going to buy it but then are the is the quality good enough to do it that way how did you price point your clothing when you started out so i literally had again had no clue what i was doing the the general uh formula that you do is you double how much it costs you to make it and then a shop will triple what they buy it from you at. Is that what happens? Yeah. So you, uh, so if I, if something costs me ten pounds to make it, it will be sixty pounds in the shop. And that's a general rule. That's, that's what works. Yeah, that's kind of the general markup, and it differs depending on which country you're selling to. So America like to times things by three point two. Uh, you know, with certain products, you can get away with like multiples of two and a half instead of three. It's all a bit mathematical. Need my iPhone, but it's, but it's interesting as well. And, and you know, you've your clothes have been everywhere, which is about you. You've gone. You're all over the world. And how did you get into? So, for example, you understand you're you're a British guy. You can go and talk to the retailers, whether it's Debenhams or whether it's mm. Harrods, those places. But you got into Barney's, yeah. And that was a, that's you know a huge step in the American market. How did that happen? And how did you it sort of allow that? It sort of how did you deal with that whole situation? So the Barney story was is quite a good story. So I um, I was living with Agnes at the time, and at the time I started my T-shirts, me and Agnes were living together in Camden, and she became this huge global supermodel at the exact same time that I was launching my T-shirts. And um, so we got this invite through the door, and it was like an invite to a Teen Vogue party in New York, and we were like... It's a bit embarrassing. They think we live in New York. And then we were like, oh, fuck it, should we just go? It's a party. It was like launching a party for the Olsen twins or something. They'd done a cover and I was still obsessed with the Olsens from my day at Smash It. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, let's go. Um, and so I think I had a, a shoot over there. So we went to New York and went to this party for literally about 10 minutes. 
um, and met the Olsons. And the editor of Teen Vogue, Amy Astley, is an amazing woman, introduced us to Anna Winter, same party, who then invited us to one of her other parties the, the next night. And she kind of, it was... Scary. What was she like? Well, she's great. I mean, she's just very straightforward. And I think it's more the reputation that makes her so makes formidable scary. and so scary, yeah. yeah. But the best thing was she she invited us to this party and then she um and then as she was leaving she was like and dress up and looked Aggie up and down who was wearing a sweatshirt dress and went, both of you <laughs> <laughs> If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And then left and we were like, oh my God. Uh, and then it was, it was Amy who introduced me to the creative director of Barney's at the time. He was a lady called Julie Gilhart. Um, and I was there in New York with a carrier bag, and I'm not exaggerating here, a carrier bag of T-shirts. And I went for a meeting with the buying department of Barney's. And again, this is where the naivety kicks in and makes it useful because I had no idea who Julie Gilhart was at the time, so I didn't realise the enormity of the situation. She gathered her whole buying floor into her office. It was people sat on chairs, like, going out the door. They couldn't close the door. And then one by one, I just lifted out these T-shirts and recited these... <laughs> horrendously sexual <laughs> rhymes in their face. And I was like, come again, Christopher Kane. Give us a tickle, Richard Nichol. And I was literally... As like you were a, doing it, were you like, this is probably was, not was, the way to I, do Yeah, it. I was like, this is going terribly awful. And she placed an order before I left the room for like probably one of my biggest orders. But that's insane. Oh, but, I, but I think that's... You, you were that, again, going back to that naivety, which I think is so important, you were that, you know... 
breath of fresh air coming into quite a stuffy kind of industry sometimes. If I'd have gone into that room today, I'd have been shaking like a leaf, probably lifting out those T-shirts. Because yeah, you know I'd have so known the names of all those buyers and they'd have been ignoring me for the past four years. <laughs> so I'd be like, you know, desperately trying to impress them. Whereas I just was like, oh, well, there's that one, there's that one. Um, and so, and, and then cut to delivering the T-shirts. I didn't get them delivered in time. I got a shipping manual, with, which was 60 pages long, and I was sat in my living room with, like, boxes piled to the ceiling. Um, our flat was basically the size of this room, which is very small. And uh, I I was just sat amongst all these boxes and then printed out the shipping uh, document that was 60 pages about instructions and just sat there and burst into tears. <laughs> and I was like, I'm just never going to be able to do it. Um, so we delivered them late and they never ordered again. But, I mean, I got in there. <laughs> <laughs> that bit's not important. And, and you talked about there with um, Anna Wintour and you touched on it earlier about the kind of serious side of fashion and the, yeah. the kind of element of the fashion world that perhaps takes itself too seriously. Mm. How much of a challenge has that been for your brand and how have you sort of personally kind of hit that head on? I don't think it's ever been a challenge, really. I think now that there's social media and now that, you know, that has completely blown the doors off this kind of closed off secretive world of the fashion industry, which yeah. people used to think was so important to creating something that was elevated and, you know, there needed to be this exclusivity to create something that was worthy of that price point. That's completely gone out the window now. And people love to show that they have a sense of humor and a personality. I mean, look at Victoria Beckham and her YouTube channel, you know, so much of her brand is about her getting her personality out there so that people buy into her as a person as much as they do her clothes. Um, and that's just something that I've done from day one, just because I can't help it. You know, I'd, yeah. well, it was never a business choice. It was never a, strat a marketing strategy. It was just like, I want to go out and get pissed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, let's let's have fun. Let's, you know, I was thrown into this world that was this amazingly exciting world of fashion, which I'd desperately wanted to be a part of for so long. And then I found myself there and I was like, this is ace. And I enjoyed it just authentic and yeah because and that's it, yeah. what and you that's why you always describe at the beginning you say that your you know your your clothing brand started almost as a joke as, yeah. as a bit of fun and that's what's so great about it that you kept true to that and kept going with that if you could collaborate with anyone or any brand or anything in the entire world which mm. brand or person or store or whatever would you pick I don't like answering these questions because then all the other collaborators would be like, well, fine then, cancel it. Well, then I suppose, <laughs> I suppose who do you find not collaborating with? Who I do did, you admire? Who do you admire out there? I did, actually, when, I, when we launched Menswear, I did collaborate with Martin Parr, the photographer, and that was a huge, like, massive bucket list item for me. I like When I first moved to London, it was the first exhibition that I went to see where I really connected with his photography and I really got a feel for his aesthetic. And there was the... The, that real British sensibility, that sense of humour and that sort of, that knowing uh, Britishness about it. And that was amazing. I got to work with him. I took him to Ramsbottom and we did a shoot all around the town of Ramsbottom. And all these old women were like, stop taking my picture at the bus stop. <laughs> it was incredible. Um, and what's next for House of Holland? What's on the agenda? Um, well, I mean, I think we're just trying to continue to build and grow on what we've already got. You know, I think we've uh, we've been through a tough couple of years and we're coming out the other side now, which I think is really positive for me. I think for anyone who owns 
a business in the fashion world to come out the other side of a, of a of a dip or of a you know a tough period is a really uh, comforting thing because you know it means you've you've survived it and there's that real fear of one day you're cool one the next day you're not cool um and I think that's what I think what is so important is that everyone looks at the success. They go, well, your clothes are selling here and they're here and they must be doing well. But in fact, like our business, like every other business, like, you know, Ed and I are re- reading, well, I'm reading now the book Shoe Dog, which is Phil Knight, the creator of Nike. He struggled mm. the, the entire time until when it floated and IPO and all yeah, those kind incredible. of things. If you yeah. haven't read it, you should read yeah. that because you read it and you cannot believe Nike, which just seems like this giant, yeah. you're kind of like, how would that ever fail? And it's just right up until the IPO, he thought he could go because out of business Because making stuff costs money. So <laughs> yeah. the more you sell, News the flash. more money you need to make it. You know, it's just like, we spoke on the phone actually before yeah. the podcast and you were like, if you were going to do something that wasn't like what you do now, what would it be? And I was like, anything without manufacturing involved. I was like, <laughs> the service industry all the way, just sell but, my services. But do you know what's so funny? We have a lot of friends, you know, who are in the service business mm. and all of them say to me, I would sell a product. Yeah. I would 100% put Grass it Grass is always greener. Grass is always greener, yeah. It's always totally. greener. But I suppose, you know, on those ties which have been hard, do you think for you it's money management and actually that money is oxygen and unfortunately that's the world we live in because we are very much the same road as that. Yeah, of course. And also um, the fashion industry is quite unique and it's not as easy to plot a course because it's very uh, it's very cyclical. So we have four seasons a year. And, you know, that's our, that's the, the main focus of our income is our wholesale revenue of those four seasons. And you might have an amazing season uh, for spring, summer, and then an absolute shocker for autumn, winter. So literally you go, like, it's every 12 weeks, like, it's this huge roller coaster. And it's about trying to sort of mitigate those uh, peaks and troughs and kind of level it out a little bit. And that's definitely something you learn from getting it wrong. You know, you're never going to learn that from always having a big season and always making loads of cash. So on that note, what is the biggest lesson you think you've learned? The biggest piece of advice that you've now, your younger self has taken into the future with you? What have you learned? Um, Authenticity, I think. Stay authentic to what it is you set out to do and what makes you happy doing it. And then if that fails, then that fails. And you can always kind of walk away in the knowledge that you stayed true to what it was you set out to do. I think just desperately scrabbling around and like trying to change what you do to to remain solvent is not going to end well. Awesome. And you touched on it already, but the one question we like to ask all of our guests. No, 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 it's cool. <laughs> Sorry, I just killed the closing, didn't I? <laughs> Shit. One question. <laughs> One you question said I was like, like, I, was, you said I, was like I also just, blew the cover that we yeah, spoke yeah. pre the car. Yeah, yeah. It's like you just ruined the whole <laughs> format. <It's> an illusion. <laughs> Get <laughs> out. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go on. Yeah. One more so, question. The one question we like to ask all of our guests before they leave us yeah. is that if you were going to start a new business tomorrow yeah. and forget House of Holland, what would it be? It would be uh, <laughs> not manufacturing. No. I think I would love to utilize all of my learnings from what I've, uh, all of my mistakes that I've made and use them to help other people. I get a real kick out of helping other people um, and especially in this field and in this realm. And I'd love to like do consultancy and, and help other people start their businesses and, and grow their businesses. 
Amazing. Plus the pressure's off then, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, all yeah, whatever. <laughs> just, just if it fails, I'll just go and consult with someone else. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Henry Holland, thank you so much. Thank for being you on very, me. very Really much. appreciate it, buddy. Thank you so much. Thank you. See, this is why I like doing the podcast, buddy, because uh, you just find out so many things that relate to us in our business, right? Like looking in the mirror. It's kind of quite therapeutic, I find it. It's kind of, yeah, therapy. Okay, also what we like to do is we like to pick out some useful kind of points, tips, advice that he gave, uh, Henry did throughout the podcast. What kind of, what advice have you taken away from this today? So for me, there's probably two that really stood out. One, I think, was kind of odd advice, counterintuitive, as Henry said, never have a plan B. I think we've probably had that ourselves without even really realizing it. We've gone through our kind of business life so far, just totally focused on the fact that it's going to work mm. and committed to that and, you know, never, never doubted ourselves. So not having a plan B, I guess, gives you that has to work attitude. No safety net. I like it. Exactly. And then number two was the, the point he made about education, which I think Henry said was some advice that he received himself. I think that is so important. Go broad with your education. You know, don't necessarily put yourself in that pigeonhole and, and really specify on on something you you might want to be one day, unless obviously it's medicine or something kind of vocational. But go broad, and then that can be applied to whatever it is as you develop and grow. Mm. And I have two ones as well. My two ones were uh, use your contacts, whoever they are, make sure you use your contacts to your advantage. His sister helped him out. Um, his uh, friend, Agnes Dean, also the supermodel, uh, you know, she would have helped him. All different people, always use your contacts. And the other one, which I think is so important is find out what you don't want to do. Henry went out there, he went and tried everything. He tried all different areas of fashion and realized what he really wanted to do within that. Go and do that. Great podcast, great person. Uh, really enjoy that. Thank you to Henry Holland. What a great podcast. This was Move. Thank you so much for listening. Honestly, it really does mean a huge amount. And we also hope today's podcast has inspired you to move towards your dream or passion. Now, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a comment. And if you'd like to get in touch, please email us at move at moveclub.co.uk or follow us on Instagram at moveclub. Until next time, this is Move. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24.